You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. So, welcome everyone. My name's Kevin Watkins. I'm director at ODI, and I'd like to welcome all of you to the to this evening's event, Brexit Impact on Developing Countries. We've had an awful lot of discussion about Brexit, not quite so much discussion about the potential implications for people around the world, and in particular in developing countries. As well as, as uh, those of you in this room, we have around 200 people who are joining us online. So welcome to our online audience. For those of you who are on Twitter, uh, the hashtag is Global Dev Brexit. Um, we have a fantastic uh, group of speakers with us this evening. David Luke, who's coordinator of the Africa Trade Policy Center in the UN Economic Commission for Africa. Welcome. David, um, Phyllis Papa David, who's team leader in our international macroeconomic on uh, sorry international macroeconomics here at ODI. Vicky Price, who's economist and former joint head UK government economic service, and Mohammed Razak, who's advisor and head of the international trade and regional cooperation section at the Commonwealth Secretariat. Um, it, it, it strikes me that the discussion around or the, the fallout from the Brexit discussion is a reminder of a few important home truths. Uh, and I'm going to try and be part, slightly bipartisan in the way that I present this. Um, the, the, the first is that calamitous decisions do indeed produce calamitous economic consequences. Uh, ranging from uh, what was the biggest one-day loss in a hard currency since the end of the Bretton Woods system, uh, the biggest 10-day loss in the last quarter of a century. Uh, the Brexiteers have managed to achieve a drop in the value of sterling in one day, which was twice the amount that George Soros uh, achieved with the uh, gamble on sterling around the time of the exchange rate mechanism. So that's um, quite an achievement. It turns out that, uh, you know, whatever the failures of experts, they got that one right on this particular um, issue. The potential economic loss from the range of estimates that I've looked at are, are typically coming in at around 1% of GDP uh, long term. To put that in, con in uh, context of the context of a number that was widely used in the debate, that the net contribution of the UK to the European Union is around 8.5 billion sterling. Uh, the loss associated with 1% of GDP is around 18 billion. Um, so that turns out to be not such a good move either. Um, the, the, I, I think also, and, and you know, this really to some degree slipped under the radar until relatively recently that, you know, this, this is also a reminder of the reality of global economic interdependence, that we've had textile exporters in India and Bangladesh, um, fruit and vegetable exporters in Kenya, expressing really serious concerns about the, the implications for their prospects in the UK market. So some of the poorest countries are affected. We've seen central bank tightening in South Africa, uh, Brazil, and other countries as a direct consequence. 
There, there are clearly huge ramifications for the value and effectiveness of the UK aid budget, all of which we're going to have an opportunity um, to discuss. So the way that uh, we're going to run this is uh, we're going to kick off with some questions from me to the speakers and some quite short responses. Uh, I'd, I'd like to make this to the extent that we can reasonably <coughs> controversial and provocative, so please don't feel you need to hold back. Um, and then uh, we'll throw it open to wider discussion. So, David, let, let me kick off with you. I, you know, I, I think in many respects from those channels that I've been mentioning, the, the trade channels and remittances, of course, have, there are huge consequences there, but also aid channels. This has very big consequences for Africa. I mean, maybe if you could start off by telling us something about you know, your perspective from the ECA and any preliminary work that, that, that you've been doing on that area. Sure. Uh, thank you, uh, Kevin, and uh, good evening to everyone. Uh, truly delighted at this uh, turnout. Um, uh, yes, at the Africa Trade Policy Center, uh, we did uh, some quick and dirty uh, estimates um, uh, in the last few days as to uh, what's the likely impact on Africa and, and the channels. And indeed, you've um, identified the key ones that we uh, inevitably uh, to, uh, looked at, uh, trade, um, investment, um, uh, remittances, um, uh, aid, uh, as well as, of course, uh, tourism, uh, which is uh, for several African countries, um, the UK, share of the market is, is, is important. Um, on, um, on trade, uh, our estimate is that the UK accounts for about 11% of um, Africa's agricultural trade, uh, which already you mentioned uh, in, in relation to small producers and, and so on, and about 14% of non-agricultural trade. Um, uh, within that 14%, of course, a large chunk is um, uh, petroleum products, uh, as, well as, as well as mineral products from uh, from the leading um, uh, petroleum and, and mineral uh, exporters. Uh, so we do see um, uh, some risks uh, if the UK economy slides into a recession uh, for this um, uh, relationship, um, and also um, depending too on the depth of the of, of the recession and the length. Of, of the recession, so we do see some risks um, on that front. Uh, very quickly on investment, uh, the UK, UK's investment between 2004 and 2014 has actually doubled uh, from about 20 billion pounds to about uh, 40 uh, billion pounds. And, and uh, some of this is beginning to go into um, uh, sectors that um, uh, we see as uh, growth poles for African economies. Uh, Again, we see a, a risk there. Uh, I know we'll be talking a lot about aid, but I'll just very quickly say that um, on the aid front, it's not only, again, if the UK becomes inward-looking, but then also the UK's um, uh, contribution and influence to European aid, we see uh, a risk uh, there as well. And then uh, very quickly, I'll end with this on uh, tourism. Uh, we, uh, we see this as an important channel since um, uh, small countries like the Gambia, um, <coughs> Uh, Kenya, South Africa, um, among others, um, uh, the UK accounts for an important share of, of their market. Remittances, of course, and you've just mentioned what has happened to sterling, which is wiped out uh, so to, uh, to some extent uh, the value of the remittances. So let me stop here. I'm sure we'll be coming back uh, 
to these uh, same issues. Maybe yes. let, let me just ask you before we move on. What just in these are very early days, I know, but in terms of the sort of policy responses that you know you're, we're starting to see across the region, I mean, could you just give us a sense of what adjustment measures governments are likely to put in place? Um, well, two things. Uh, firstly, uh, African governments uh, do recognize um, that there has been a need to um, uh, diversify uh, their various um, economic uh, partnerships. And actually, this has been ongoing, as, as, as you know, with um, emerging uh, economies playing a great, greater role um, in, in, in Africa. Um, uh, the other aspect, of course, is um, on uh, um, boosting uh, intra-African trade and investment flows, and there is a huge agenda on that as well. And I would, I hope, I could come back uh, okay. to that uh, to uh, illustrate some ways in which um, uh, there is an opportunity, but also a risk uh, uh, on on that agenda as well for the UK. Okay, yeah. thank you. Vic, David mentioned the aid part of the equation, which I know is something that you've yeah. been thinking about. So maybe if you just outline some of your initial thoughts on, on the potential impacts on development assistance. Sure. Um, I mean, as you rightly said, uh, there, there are going to be repercussions on economic growth. I mean, of course, what we have seen in terms of aid from the UK is that uh, as a percentage of GDP, it has been going up. It was a Lib Dem policy, which was introduced during the coalition government. And, uh, and if you look at the way it's moved, it's moved from 0.5% of GDP in 2011 to about 0.7% of GDP and amounting to about £12 billion last year. Uh, I mean, that's quite good news. And, of course, there are very few other countries that are at that level. Um, in fact, we, we almost lead the pack uh, alongside a few others. Um, but the question, of course, is what's going to happen to that? Let's assume it stays at 0.7%. Uh, obviously, if you have uh, a lower GDP growth, it's going to be less than it would otherwise have been. So let's just look at it from a benign point of view. The, the, the best that you can say is that it's not going to be as large as people had expected. And that, of course, has all sorts of implications in terms of any of the programs that had been planned and so on. Um, the second thing, of course, is that we could, in fact, see a decline. Uh, and if that is the case, then obviously, if it stays at that percent of GDP, it would be less than than it will actually be going down rather than going up. So that's the, second, the next thing. Uh, the third thing is that, of course, in terms of what it buys, um, it will be less because, of course, the pound, unless it suddenly miraculously uh, starts going up again to the extent that it breaks yet another record in terms of the, the rise that it may have, which is very unlikely given that we're going to see more uh, uh, cuts in interest rates uh, coming up, so the differential interest rate with others will widen, although... The U.S., of course, is not going to raise it now, but uh, there we go. Yeah. Nevertheless, I mean, what, what it does mean is that uh, what it buys is less than it would otherwise be. And also, the cost of whatever it is that it provides will be going up. Uh, so all those things are very negative. So that's the, the, the sort of economic side, if you like. And then, of course, you've got the political aspect, which is linked to economics. Yes, of course, we have already seen... Uh, from the current chancellor anyway, and from Theresa May, but who knows what's going to happen. We now have Theresa May and Andrea Ledson, who seem to be the two who have, uh, are going forward. Um, but certainly from Theresa May that, and George Osborne, that uh, the, the budget surplus that we expected by 2019-20 is no longer going to be something where we're pushing for. Uh, but what it does mean is that we're going to be having considerably bigger deficits. Now, given that we made such a big fuss about this $8 billion, that you mentioned, of course. Um, well, we're spending 12 billion. Uh, 
in uh, overseas aid. Of course, there will be political tensions. Can we still afford it? Should we be redire redirecting? And you know that the UKIP demand was that it should go down to 0.2%. It's not going to be very popular because people like the feeling of being able to help. And uh, frankly, considerable extent is sort of paper money in a way. You know, the, the Bank of England is about to you know, spend 250 billion if necessary to support the banking system. Well, what is 12 billion out of that? But nevertheless, it, it will be looked at. And that, that uh, of course, puts it all under serious threat. So, so we have to be aware, and perhaps we can talk about the consequences of that. There is, of course, an extra element, which is what do we do if we really do leave the EU in terms of all the projects that we're doing jointly? Because, of course, 40% of, of all the aid is, goes through multilateral uh, organizations. Yes, of course, individual countries in the EU take responsibility for various things. And that's pretty good because we're quite strong in various areas and, and we, we lead various, various of these projects. But there are some, some, some areas which are really interesting. And when I used to work for the government myself, I had actually gone to sign on behalf of the UK yet another of that trade deals uh, with the EU, the, the EU Mediterranean uh, zone, which is actually very important. Yes, of course, we've got problems because right now these trade agreements don't really work with Libya, uh, which have been suspended, and with Syria. But certainly, if you look at the, the whole Mediterranean, it's a very, very important part of the world where we are establishing a sort of free trade zone. They're not necessarily still doing it between them, but certainly we are... We have been encouraging the access to, to Europe. What's going to happen with all that? And it wasn't just goods. It's, it's aimed to be moving towards services increasingly, but also a lot of what we do is to do technical assistance with, with, with corporate governance issues and so on, which we've been focusing on. So, so there is a big, big question mark about those particular projects, which might, you know, obviously that will affect the various countries, but also the uncertainty that it leaves us with in terms of really what can we focus on in the future. Okay. Uh, maybe just before I go, I go on to Mohammed, on because you you raise as you know there's a financial aspect to this, but there's also a political mm -hmm. aspect, and you know we're we're going to see slower growth, we're going to see more pressure on on the fiscal side. And there are certainly going to be people who are arguing, you know, now is the time to squeeze the parts of the budget that are politically squeezable. And aid, mm. I would have thought, fits into that category. Yeah. But I, I just wondered what your perspective, you know, now that we have a sort of slightly clearer picture of who the next um, Prime Minister is likely to mm -hmm. be, you know, what you think uh, the, the prospects are of us seeing, you know, a concerted drive to cut the aid budget. Well, I think uh, everything will be under scrutiny, without any doubt. Although I think we are going to have a reflationary budget, without, you know, because otherwise, uh, otherwise the experts will be proven right, you see, which will be a bit of a problem. So, so we need to do something to get the economy working again. Uh, but I think everything will be will be looked at and will be looked at very carefully uh, by the treasury, because the real problem is we are all these things are not free. Uh, you know, reducing interest rates to zero means less profitability for the banks, it means less money for savers, it means weaker pound. You've seen your evening standard front page. You know, we heard about tourism saying it's going to cost you an extra 200 quid and counting, uh, basically, to, to go any, to, I, I can't, I didn't read the details of where. Is it my Greek trip next week? I mean, I don't know whether that is the one. Uh, but, but, um, but I think we will have, already we've been downgraded and we'll be downgraded again. Yes, the, the markets at present are quite prepared to buy uh, government bonds and so yields are very low so we can borrow relatively cheaply. But how long that will last, uh, one doesn't know. But I think there is, uh, there is a serious threat, in my view. Okay. Thanks. Mohammed, if, if I could come on to you. They, what, you know, one of the arguments that was widely used during the debate by the Leave camp, including by someone who until recently was a prime ministerial candidate, 
was that um, Brexit would be good for the Commonwealth and or good f for building a new type of trading relationship that was focused more on the Commonwealth, less on the European Union. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if they ever checked in with the Commonwealth Secretariat or discussed that with anybody in the Commonwealth, but I just wondered you know, maybe if you could give us a, a Commonwealth perspective on that. Uh, sure. Um, Kevin, thanks. And first of all, thank you very much you know, for the invitation. Uh, before uh, responding to your query, if you would allow me, I would like to make a general point, you know, just to highlight the importance of this in you know, a Brexit event and how the global community is going to address it. As you all know, last year we had these sustainable development goals adopted by the international community. And Brexit shock has come quite an interesting time when there has been a lot of emphasis given on international trade as an engine or kind of you know supporting development in many of the LDCs, least developed countries in Africa. On the other hand, what we are seeing that the growth of trade, even irrespective of Brexit, has been subdued. In fact, we all know the figures. Huh? If you think about the long-run international trade growth between 1980 and 2000, that it was 7% per annum. If you think about what has happened over the past six years, there is only 3%. And this is quite unprecedented in nature by the history of our you know, recent times, over the seven or eight decades, that never happened. So we are living at a time where already the trade growth rate was really, really feeble. Um, a week, and now we're getting into another round of uncertainty caused by this Brexit. I think that point is extremely important. And also what is important is this. If you think about LDCs, I have done some, you know, some back of the envelope calculation, very rough, because the research is now being undertaken. If you think about the composition of exports, you know, that is concerned of many of our member states in Africa and in least developed countries, these days, we all talk about development with structural transformation. So forget about commodity dependence, whether we can move into the next phase, something on manufacturing. In that way, I have got a feeling, perhaps UK's imports from least developed countries or sub-Saharan African countries a bit more diversified compared to other country groups that we are aware of. Like, you know, we have, there is a reference to Bangladesh and Cambodia. They largely export uh, textiles and clothing. And they will, they are already you know, experiencing the shock because as the pound is falling down, and there is some estimate by uh, ODI that 10% uh, devaluation could lead to close to 400 billion, uh, sorry, 400 million worth of you know export losses. So that is one dimension. But also think about the other way around. The pound has lost value, so in that way, the imports here will be more expensive. And just today, I think there was a figure. I think yesterday. The, for Marks and Spencer, the sales figure has gone down by 8%. Now, why they are procuring all their, you know, most of their materials, mainly from developing countries. And again, I think countries like Bangladesh, Cambodia, those particular export uh, textile and clothing to, to the UK will, 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 will uh, see the consequences. Kevin, now coming back to your question on the Commonwealth issues, I'm sure that this has been, uh, you know, at least in some people's mind that uh, if Brexit happens, then the UK will have its uh, policy sovereignty and thereby, you know, uh, going for the Commonwealth-wide uh, some kind of, you know, trading arrangements uh, will be of great value. But to be honest, the way we say this is that, of course, you know, many people can see the opportunity in that, but the, there are tremendous challenges, you know, of thinking about you know, that kind of trading block. 
because Cyprus and Malta, two other Commonwealth countries, they are still part of the Commonwealth. And that means a Commonwealth-wide FTA, for the same reason when UK was the part of the European Union, will be quite difficult. That's one issue. The second issue is, if you look at the Commonwealth, Commonwealth is nothing. It's just a microcosm of a wider global community. And we have got all different types of members at different levels of development. So with that kind of situation, negotiating a trade deal is just like something uh, as difficult as under the WTO. And that's what we'll see, you know, it can go on and for a long time. In contrast, the real advantage of the Commonwealth was that, you know, we can promote our trade based on our historical ties, the great advantage of the language English. And in recent times, we have estimated, you know, that would give the Commonwealth members a 19% cost advantage already. You know, it is in our flagship public, uh, trade publication report that we launched last year, uh, uh, Commonwealth has the government meeting in Malta. So that advantage is already there. We did not have to you know, go through an FTO trading block kind of arrangement. So my view is, of course, one can see the possibility, but I see there are going to be enormous challenges as well. OK, thank you, Mohamed. Phyllis, I already mentioned the currency effects. And these are clearly, they're, they're, they're probably not short term. And they probably are going to have long term real economy effects in emerging markets. Could you maybe just talk us through some of your initial thinking on, on that? Yes, sure. Um, frankly, estimates that we've seen in the run up to the Brexit vote were a fall in sterling of anywhere between 10 and 30 percent. Uh, in trade-weighted terms, we've seen about 12 percent. Um, but I think, you know, in the work we've just done on this paper we've just published, there's, there's two key pathways, and one is the exchange rate on trade aid and remittances, and the second pathway is financial markets themselves. Uh, when it comes to the currency, so just the 10 percent devaluation we've seen, um, it actually can be quite uh, detrimental uh, for trade, a trade aid and remittances. So $1.4 uh, billion loss in remittances, uh, $1.9 billion reduction in aid, uh, and $500 million uh, export revenue hit uh, for developing countries, for, for LDCs, actually. So that's a $3.8 billion uh, loss just from the 10 percent devaluation. So sterling continues to fall. Um, that's the key risk, and I think it stands to be quite um, calamitous, actually, for, for growth prospects. Um, in terms of the second channel, I think it's equally as significant. In the wake of the vote, uh, we saw $3 trillion lost in three days. Uh, we've seen some stabilization after that. Uh, but given the level of, of economic uh, uncertainty, of political uncertainty, um, I think we can assume that the volatility is going to continue. And that's the thing that's, that's really detrimental for growth prospects, because we see lesser developed countries really take a hit on their investment uh, in that situation and their longer term growth path. So those are the two. We actually go through quite a few pathways, but those are the two that I think are, in the short term at least, are quite significant. Could you maybe just say a little bit more about some of the emerging market currency effects that we've seen so far? So on the day of the, the day after the vote, um, the South African rand uh, hit a record low against the yen. Um, effectively, what we're seeing is, is risk aversion. So the markets are generally going for safe haven assets, gold, 
U.S. government bonds, the Japanese yen. And it's this particular risk-averse scenario where the countries that we care about suffer because uh, there's a, a reversal of, of investment flows. And so in that context, you saw the countries that actually have strong trade relationships with the U.K. Uh, really struggle. So South Africa, India, Nigeria. Um, the Central Bank of India intervened uh, to support their currency. You saw several central banks intervening to support their currencies. So I guess our worry is that if this continues, you'll see not only currency weakness, but currency volatility. And that, over the longer term, really really does have detrimental investment and growth impacts. It throws any long-term plans off course in the developing world. Thank you. Okay, so um, there, there are two um, planted questions. I was going to say expert questions. They are experts, but they are, the, the questions are also planted. One from uh, contribution stroke questions from Max Mendez Para, who with Phyllis and uh, my colleague Dirk Willem Teveld uh, produced the briefing paper that Phyllis referred to, which um, please do pick up. It's, uh, it's right outside. So, Max, over to you. Thank you. Uh, my question is more to the long term effects in terms of capitalist trade. Uh, there is uh, the worst of the, in the, many of the Brexiteers that the EU is. Sorry, I'm going to repeat the question with the microphone. Uh, this is more associated with long term effects of, on trade with developing countries. There was on the Brexiters the idea of trying to impose that. Uh, the EU was very protectionist, so there might be a pressure actually to have very open uh, trade regime, and that means uh, low, most, most favorable nation tariff. Uh, what would be that scenario? That is a scenario where actually the UK is out of, the, uh, uh, of any kind of customs union with, with the EU. What would be the implications, particularly for less developed countries in Africa and the Commonwealth, of the fact that they will be affecting in terms of their preference margins? Thank you. And uh, Lucia Fry, who's head of policy at uh, ActionAid. Uh, yeah, I was just going to broaden the discussion out a little bit, actually. Um, uh, to ask the panel to reflect a bit on the uh, impacts of Brexit on the kind of global political economy, because as anybody who's been in any of the big international meetings over the last 15 years, they'll have observed that the UK has enormous political heft in a lot of these discussions, and that that has largely been um, in a progressive direction. I'm thinking of things like the leadership role it's played on climate, tax transparency, corruption, and, and the leverage it's used with its aid budget on various important issues like women's rights, nutrition, and so on. So I was wondering if you'd like to reflect on what are the... I, what we're likely to see is, I suppose, a less sort of muscular UK on the international on the international stage, both because they'll be will be more inward looking, will be preoccupied with the terms of, uh, the terms of Brexit and possible weakening of support to point seven, as Vicky said. So I wondered if you'd like to reflect on that a little bit and what that means for development cooperation globally. And then just another sort of observation, really, to throw out there. If, like me, you've been spending a lot of time reading, watching, trying to learn about the 
motivations of those who voted leave over the last couple of weeks, you might have noticed the same thing, which is that the concerns that they voice when given a chance, when they're not being called stupid, which we mustn't do, is, uh, is uh, what they want are decent jobs, good public services, opportunities for their families, life chances for their children. And sort of bearing in mind the universality of the sustainable development goals, I just wonder whether there's a little opportunity there for trying to bridge the, the notion of development cooperation into our own community. Okay, so they're really great questions to get the ball rolling. I see you've got the short straw, so you're going to get the first one. And I, I mean, I know the the work on this must be in its very early stages, but you clearly the the preferences issue does have very serious ramifications for Africa, and in particular on the EU trade partnership side. So maybe if you could respond to that part of the the question. Sure. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, on the preferences. Uh, um, our view would be, and this is supported by the research we've been doing, is that um, the preferences have been eroding anyway. Um, I think this is the trend that we have seen. And um, in any event, uh, the um, mega-regional uh, agreements that are not quite in force yet, but you, we know the direction that they've been going, um, the, uh, in particular the TPP, the uh, ICP, that's the Regional Comprehensive Economic um, uh, agreement among the um, uh, Asian uh, countries. Um, very clearly, you know, the direction is preference uh, erosion. What we've been arguing for at um, the Africa Trade Policy Center is actually um, more flexible rules of origin um, that would allow for um, a greater accumulation uh, between um, uh, African countries and even between um, African countries and, and, and other uh, partners. And um, we've seen how this has worked in the context of AGOA with the U.S. Um, when the U.S. allowed for um, a greater accumulation in um, uh, textile and clothing uh, production, uh, we saw the uh, exports uh, from countries like Lesotho, uh, etc., just um, uh, rocketed. So uh, we've been advocating for... Um, uh, reform of the rules of origin in preferential arrangements. And I think there's an opportunity here in how the, U the UK would structure its relations with poor uh, countries. I think the rules of origin is, is, is what it will be key, not so much uh, preference uh, erosion. Okay, thank you. Mohamed, uh, if you want to add something on that, but they, I'd, I'd also like you just to get the ball rolling on one, one of the two wider questions that um, Lucia asked, which is on the role of the UK in international cooperation? And does this signal, you know, if you like, a diminished role looking ahead? Sure. Um, I would like to address you know, both the question in a, in a brief way. First of all, it's true. I mean, economists probably we are better in predicting things on a more long-term basis, I mean, short-term fluctuation and, and, and volatility. Although, I mean, they can put things, as uh, my colleague here said, that, you know, we'll, we'll put things, of course. But having said that, I mean, I also want to be objective here. The fact is, now UK has got tremendous opportunity as well to undertake some of the things that will actually benefit or will be seen as an improvement of the existing mechanism. David has given one example of this uh, rules of origin uh, issue. Here, if you think about the standard mechanism that exists in the globally, 
then the European Union, they follow more complicated rules of origin procedure. On the other hand, many people think the Australian and the Canadian approach of just about 25% value-added and you get duty-free quota market access, that is by far the best possible mechanism for supporting countries. And if UK is going to get back its policy sovereignty, I think you know, that's, the, uh, that's, a, that's an important route that you could take. Also, Max, the issue is, think about the common agriculture policy. I believe the UK is going to be a country that would be able to, I hope so, you know, to, to get rid of you know, some of the, uh, the, the issues there. And that will tremendously help some of the African countries, but also at the same time will set example, like you know, what could be a development-friendly trade policy regime. The other issue is, think about, despite all the struggles that we have seen in the post-financial crisis uh, global economic environment, the UK has achieved the UN target of 0.7% of you know, its uh, national income as foreign aid. Now, that tells a lot of things. I mean, if UK is going to be committed, despite the fact that you know, there is going to be some loss of clout uh, as it was uh, you know, having under the European Union, but I do believe you know, there will be other you know, people in the room to support UK, the whole Sub-Saharan Africa, LDC group, ACP countries and many of the commonwealth developing countries. So I do not fully rule out that uh, it will be total loss in terms of UK's exerting influence. Thank you. Thank you. Vicky, I, I wanted to ask you what, you know, it's probably, uh, I think, a really good question, but it does go slightly beyond, the, you know, how we'd frame the discussion, which is about the implications of the vote for the UK. <coughs> you know, there's the phrase in the new sustainable development goals of leave no one behind. It's basically people, people who, are, who are being left behind in the UK voted en masse to leave. And I just wondered, you know, what you... Th I mean, the point that Lucia was making about the, the universality of that commitment and does, you know, does it have a greater resonance than ever really in our own backyard? Um, I mean, obviously, one has to take into account what pe why people voted the way they did, and it was a protest vote, and quite a lot of people have been left behind, and obviously there's been a regional rebalancing or anything like that. Uh, however, I think we move, we're likely to have a government which is more right-wing than what we just had. So I wouldn't have huge hopes uh, in that respect. And frankly, if you have low growth, that will just get worse for all these people. And at some point, they will perhaps think differently. I mean, we've already seen, uh, and I'm not necessarily advocating it, but certainly an Evening Standard uh, opinion poll which suggested just if, a couple of days ago, maybe it was yesterday, that, that the, the lever, a third of the levers will now vote to stay. Uh, but who knows what would happen if it were. But I don't think that you can improve the, the condition of people by having uh, a recession in the economy. It's hard to argue with that. Phyllis, <laughs> <laughs> um, do, do you want, I mean, maybe just give us your take on the international cooperation yeah. question. Because, I, you know, I, I do think you, this is a really key area, actually, because the UK has played a leadership role over many years, you know, mm. both on development assistance, but also more broadly on the sustainable development goals and, and in other areas, just yeah. you know, how you view the future. It's an interesting thing in terms of the UK's role in the global macroeconomy. Um, you know, as China liberalizes its economy um, and many other emerging countries become bigger and emerge, uh, UK was a destination for that sort of collaboration and investment. And in the aftermath of the UK's vote, um, plans for China to issue renminbi bonds, to develop these types of collaborations have been delayed. 
so this type of uncertainty, I think, at least from an economic and a financial perspective, is going to be um, quite detrimental uh, for the UK's role as a, as a sort of a cohesive force. Thank you. Okay, so at this point, I, I really want to throw it open to you guys. Um, I'll take, uh, there are microphones scattered liberally around the room. So I'm going to take questions in um, groups of two or three. Uh, Sheila Page, uh, ODI. Um, one uh, follow-up on the, the question about uh, the UK's role, but also one on... Um, that I was intending to ask. Is it actually credible that the UK will be doing anything interesting on rules of origin, innovations, anything else, given the huge agenda which is going to have just disentangling itself? Uh, I hope Razak is right, but I doubt it. Uh, but my question is really what the impact of not having the UK in the room is going to be on EU trade and aid and migration and refugee policy. Uh, on the direction of aid, because it weakens the Western versus Eastern European axis, on the composition of aid, on the allocation to LDCs, on tide aid, on trade policy. Um, again, the UK may or may not have a good agricultural policy, but the CAP will be reformed in its next round without the UK. What will be the impact of all of these be? Thank you. Uh, one question right, right here. Thank you all. Even though what you have listed makes me less hopeful and it looks like a catalogue of losses one after another. Mm -hmm. uh, I work with Save the Children. I'm based in Melbourne in Australia. I voted here to stay. My question is there was a reference to about 2 billion. Yeah, sorry, in the paper it says 1.9 billion. Possibly it would have crossed to 2 billion by now. In the total value of aid that will be going into these countries. If you're talking about 700 million people will go to bed hungry tonight, millions of children who are left out. My question is not about them. My question is, this aid also brings a lot of goodwill and soft power for UK. Mm -hmm. What's your qualitative estimate about what UK will lose out from that soft power which always aid has brought into this country, its influence and its power? Okay, uh, I'll, I'll take one more question in this round. Um, just second row. Uh, thanks. Stephen Gild from the ODI. Um, expanding, in a way, on both of these uh, first two questions, there's been very little uh, discussion tonight, and I think generally in the coverage uh, of the vote, about the impact on the EU itself as an institution. Uh, because I think that the, if Britain does leave, and even if it doesn't, the EU's sort of foundations and foundational ideas have been shaken. And it seems to me that the, that that in itself will have an impact on developing countries, uh, both because um, the EU itself plays an important role, but also because I think the EU has been a very important example of uh, successful regional cooperation, which we all encourage as a good thing for developing countries. And that will be significantly weakened. And then the second point that I'd just like to raise is about the transaction costs that developing country officials and politicians will face uh, if they have to renegotiate or, or negotiate new deals with all, uh, with the UK and perhaps with other uh, countries as well. That, that is going to put a great uh, burden on 
these countries where the skills to deal with trade issues are quite limited? Okay, look, let, let's um, start with that. I, 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 I mean, really, there, there are two questions from slightly different angles on the, you know, what does this mean for the Europe, you know, both for the European Union and for the role of the EU in cooperation? Maybe, Vicky, if you want to well, uh, kick off. The first thing, of course, to, to say is that uh, everyone was talking about two scenarios about Europe. Either that it's, this makes them stronger if we leave because they will try and make sure it survives and therefore they will integrate a lot more, or that this is a process of, of, um, uh, of a breakup. Uh, so, so, but interestingly, uh, although the belief in EU institutions has collapsed, uh, soon after the Brexit vote, it's my understanding that uh, new opinion polls which have been conducted in the various countries actually show that the, the, um, um, the desire to stay in the EU has increased very significantly in those countries because they've seen the mess, or at least they're, they're perhaps better able to forecast the mess than uh, that the UK uh, is, uh, is, is likely to be going through. So, so that's a quite, quite interesting thing in itself. But of course, it will mean uh, lower growth in Europe too. Uh, and of course, what happens to the budget? Well, of course, the budget has already been agreed uh, the, for up to 2020. Uh, which includes us, of course, and what goes, so it's 1% of GDP, which of course, again, the problem is we paid every year, but GDP may be falling in some places, so it's still, again, an issue. And the euro itself has not been doing very well, as it happens overall. Um, and 10% uh, of that goes for all these, goes to aid, and, and you know, very, very important stuff that, that is being done. So, so uh, th there isn't any expectation that this will be looked at again in in the short term, uh, but but who knows? Uh, and and if indeed we do begin to see this sort of uh, uh, collapse in in which people have been forecasting in in uh, the, the belief that the that the EU can survive, then we might actually see all sorts of reverberations. Reverberations will be pretty bad. But there is one important issue, and that is uh, what uh, what Mohammed was talking about, which has to do with trade. Uh, and, and indeed, we have seen that world trade has grown very slowly, much more slowly than it should have been the case at this time of the, of the, of the um, recovery. Um, and, but a lot of it is due not just to the geopolitical issues uh, and, uh, and, of course, the sanctions and everything else, but it's got to do with the lack of finance that's out there. And, and the Europeans, we've already seen reverberations in terms of the banking system in Europe. So, so the thing to worry about more is what happens and the impact on, on the developing world uh, of, of that, plus, of course, the outflows of capital. They had just started going back again in 2016, the beginning of 2016, back into emerging markets after there was a huge move out. Uh, and that, of course, uh, may well reverse very, very, very quickly. Can I ask David and maybe Mohammed as well? The, 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 the issue is raised, I mean, what, what does it mean for trade negotiators in Africa or the Commonwealth not to have the UK at the European table? Um, at the European table, uh, we have not seen much um, of a difference, uh, quite frankly, uh, given the way that the, uh, the door around has gone at the WTO and, 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 and so on. We do know that um, uh, on aid, uh, refugee policy, uh, aid for trade, the enhanced integrated framework, uh, these are programs that the, EU, that the UK has been um, uh, a very strong uh, supporter uh, of. Um, 
so from that point of view, I'll be a little bit uh, skeptical uh, as to what the um, uh, effect will be on, 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 the, on, on the EU, just given the role that we have seen the UK play. But maybe I could just uh, turn this on its head and, uh, and also say something about what um, we're learning from Africa on, on what we are seeing unfolding uh, before us. And, um, uh, and this applies not only to Africa, but to other developing uh, contexts as well. Um, the African countries have chosen a regional integration model as the, uh, as the, uh, the development uh, strategy uh, for obvious uh, reasons. And we find the same sort of model in the Caribbean, in the Pacific, and, and, and so on. I think what this has done is that it has shifted uh, the political economy uh, equation uh, from uh, a much more uh, bureaucratic uh, approach, uh, bureaucratic elites um, making these decisions, and now uh, shifting towards um, wanting to be much more inclusive in the way that um, these uh, issues uh, are being approached. Um, right now, the African countries are negotiating among themselves uh, a free trade uh, agreement. And um, much of that process has been what we've called uh, Addis Ababa-driven, since most of the discussions are taking place in Addis Ababa. But we are now beginning to see uh, uh, a questioning whether that is actually the right approach and um, whether uh, there shouldn't be much more um, interaction with the capitals and, and, and so on. So, you know, clearly there is that uh, kind of shift in the sort of political economy dynamics that we're, we're beginning to see. Okay. Um, Mohamed, do you want to... Do you want to respond on this question about you know, the, the implications for the EU's role in trade negotiations with, with Commonwealth countries? Yeah, I, think, I think briefly, uh, all the like the, the uh, UK was part of the being part of the European Union, like you know, uh, as uh, David has pointed out, we have only seen what Europe or European or European Commission is doing. But I think on the whole, though, when we uh, do various kind of you know global advocacy kind of you know, work. We have seen, you know, the UK is really being very close to some of the development aspirations of our member countries. UK is a country that fully understands the challenges faced by, for example, small states. The countries with really small population, island states, with their huge cost of trading. And in many global fora, you will find the UK is actually championing those concerns. Now, the here issue is that is one of the significant fear, you know, that the, many of the common policymakers have now. Now, who is going to you know, champion those ideas within the European Commission? Uh, someone has referred to the point of aid for trade, where UK has been a lead donor agency. And I think, to some extent, it's because of the UK's influence as well. We have seen in the whole envelope of, aid, of ODA, the contribution of aid for trade has been rising. And there is solid evidence that aid for trade in general has impacted uh, positively uh, in many of the uh, developing countries. Okay, thanks. Um, I've got one question from uh, one of our online viewers, which I'd, I'd like Phyllis to take on, if you would, so, which is from Hassana from Morocco, who wants to ask the panel, do you think Brexit might open other opportunities for cooperation and development investments with a particular focus on triangular development cooperation? I suppose it would depend on the the particular country <laughs> and the sector. Um, I think so, it's so much is um, uncertain at this stage, but I think clearly maybe Max can chip in on this, um, where there is a comparative advantage with particular sectors, the UK could look to engage uh, in particular countries outside of the EU when it comes to trade. 
but I'm not sure which countries those would be at this stage um, strategically. Yeah. I think that's what we call a question in pursuit of a silver lining yeah. in the very dark cloud. <laughs> but, but there is an issue that uh, uh, we don't have enough trade negotiators here. I mean, everyone's been talking about that now. And uh, having worked for Biz myself, uh, I've, and UKTI was part of us, uh, I think that's probably true uh, right now. Um, I think it was much better before, but so much was being done through the EU that you don't actually need to do that. So, And they're all going to be very busy doing other things, as we know, renegotiating, supposedly, with so many other uh, regions and countries. So uh, try getting the right, the, finessing things right which is, I presume, what is being asked here too, uh, may actually escape the, the ability of the people to, to, to do it. So, so it is a big, big issue. Good point. Um, uh, questions over, over this side. There's one in, sort of in the middle over there. Um, hi, my name is Suvojit. I work for Adam Smith International. Uh, I have a question quite similar to the online question that uh, that came in. So as an outsider, for an, for an outsider, the EU is a fascinating experiment, <coughs> uh, liberal economics, but at the EU is also sometimes seemingly rigidly protectionist externally. <coughs> it is very liberal internally, but protectionist externally. So while I understand that this will be a growth depressor, opportunities will go down, how do you respond to, say, some people saying that uh, for non-Europeans, this levels the playing field as far as, say, access to the UK job market is concerned, as far as access to university education seats are concerned. How do you respond to that? Thank you. Uh, front, front row. Mary Dushevsky, I write for The Independent and The Guardian. Um, I'd like to ask about remittances. Um, David talked about um, the prospect of remittances being virtually wiped out. Um, and I wondered what the potential effect was on the receiving countries. But also, when you look at the UK, um, whether it actually stands to help the Brexiteers in reducing the incentives for migration. Thank you. Hi, um, <clears throat> Jack Aldane for uh, Development Finance. Um, a question for the whole panel, really. Um, you mentioned, Mohammed, the UK's influence on the development aspirations of developing countries. Um, what do you all think as to the effect this has had maybe on some of the political aspirations? I mean, what sort of damage has this done in uh, developing countries to the concept of a democracy where it would sound as though I were making some sort of personal grievance to talk about the damage it has done, except we've heard that maybe a th third of Leave voters have tried to EU turn in this respect. Could you uh, maybe comment a little bit on that aspect, the ideological aspect? Thank you. Let, let, let's take the remittances question first. And, you know, and I guess th th this is a huge issue for, you know, for the Commonwealth and for Sub-Saharan Africa because you know, Sub-Saharan Africa already pays by far the highest rates through the money transfer system, around 12% compared to 3% in South Asia. And you've now got this very big foreign exchange hit. I mean, what, what do you see as some of the longer-term development implications? Um, for the longer term, I think uh, the African countries are going to do what they have been, uh, what they've been trying to do, and that is um, 
also to look uh, internally to see how to grow their own markets. Um, I think it was Max who mentioned the structural um, transformation agenda um, very clearly uh, to um, uh, establish uh, various um, uh, pathways for um, uh, greater economic resilience. Uh, very clearly, that has to be the direction in um, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Africa as, uh, as a whole. Um, but let me, uh, I'd like to come back to this uh, uh, question of um, the triangular uh, cooperation and and um, also uh, the other question relating to um, uh, what might be uh, the uh, uh, possibilities in regard to um, education, access to um, educational services in, in the UK and so on. And I think one subject we've not explicitly talked about is actually services, uh, where the UK economy is, is, is very strong. And um, although it's difficult to begin to see which countries could be part of a triangular configuration, I can see the possibilities um, for um, UK services uh, trade. The UK uh, would need to look um, more at um, uh, innovative sources for um, for, for growth and, and so on. I think services will be uh, center stage uh, in this. And uh, so we see some possibility uh, there uh, for um, uh, services trade, the way it could impact on, on development and, and, and so on. So um, I would put some emphasis on, on services as well. Thank you. Um, Mohammed, do you want to take this issue on political, you know, the, what does it mean for political aspirations in developing countries? Yeah. Before that, Kevin, quickly on the issue of remittances, I think it's an important issue because for many of the developing countries, uh, we have seen even during the financial crisis, the flows of remittances were resilient you know, compared to other flows, investment, even aid flows. So it is going to have significant influ uh, influence on the whole uh, development dimension. Also, think about this way. Within the Commonwealth, just think about the intra-Commonwealth remittance flows from one Commonwealth country to another. For the Caribbean small countries, and we have got 12 members, the flow was $833 million last year, in 2014. So there is a significant number. We're talking about $1 billion, uh, sorry, dollar, going to the Caribbean countries, and, and, and this is going to take some time. Also, the other dimension is, when we talk about the tourism, and think about the composition of tourists, and there are studies that have found that Tourists from the UK, on average, they spend seven times more than tourists from, on average, from other groups of countries. And these are going to affect significantly, I think, particularly the Caribbean, but also uh, sub-Saharan African countries. So, so th that is the point we need to keep in mind. On the issue of the political aspirations, I think this is a very important question. But you know, I think the way I say this, it has got both other arguments. One was. As you would recall, you know, under the EU GSP and GSP Plus, there are a number of laws and regulations that the European Union wanted the recipient countries to comply with. And that has some negative ramifications. You know. Some of the policymakers in developing countries, they were not quite happy in complying with those requirements that we all aware of. On the democracy, I cannot make any comment. But the thing that I would like to tell you very sincerely is this. If you look at the literature on regional integration for any of the regions, then they give European Union as an example of success. If I'm from South Asia, and even for the South Asia, we have mentioned it quite clearly, saying that currently intra-South Asia trade is $20 billion. You just follow a European Union model of having closer integration, 
that trade will go up to $200 billion instantly. So you know, now those countries, they are dismayed you know, by what has happened. You know. So I think it will have some kind of you know, long-run implications as well. Uh, just on, on the question of whether it's going to put off people coming um, because they won't be able to send anything back home. I mean, the interesting thing is that the, the whole EU thing, uh, if people voted correctly uh, and knew what they were, they were doing, uh, was supposed to be stopping EU immigration. Uh, as we know full well that on immigration generally, without having realized actually, uh, never mind. Um, as we know, 70% of, of migration in the last 15 years has been non-EU. Uh, and even in the last few years, there have been more non-EU than EU. And that, of course, has been hugely above the government's targets anyway. They didn't do anything to stop that. Um, so so the, if that type of migration is, is affected, uh, then, then obviously that will, that will reduce the numbers. But we know full well that a number of the people who have been coming under that have been family members after a while. So, so um, the impact may not be that significant there. But of course, you can stop that through all sorts of, and it goes back to the other question about, will it be easier for, for people from uh, elsewhere to come? If they still have the, the aim to reduce the numbers to below, to, to the tens of thousands, then no, I'm afraid there will be fewer people coming in from outside the EU. So don't raise your hopes too much for, for whoever it is that, uh, that may be coming. And actually, frankly, we do need these people. And it would be a great, great shame. Phyllis, I, just, I wanted to ask you a slightly different question. That if you look at the monetary policy responses from central bank authorities in emerging markets, you know, there are a number of countries which you mentioned, you know, Brazil, South Africa, your countries that are either facing political instability or have large current account deficits that will presumably have to make quite significant adjustments. I mean, you know, the future is uncertain, but this turmoil isn't going to stop tomorrow. I, I just wonder what, you know, what you see as the longer-run development consequences of the, of the types of policy of, or monetary policy adjustments that central bank authorities might feel pushed into. Yeah, so not, uh, not a pretty picture for, for some countries. Um, typically, if you see the currency devalued or depreciate um, by anywhere between 10 and 15 percent, which we haven't seen in many currencies, admittedly, um, you get inflation uh, and hyperinflation in many countries. And if you're in a if you're a country which also has large external imbalances, like a deficit, um, that tends to be quite an unstable uh, scenario uh, to be in. I have to say, though, that this uh, this, this uh, event, this Brexit. Um, I think it's important to emphasize that, and it was mentioned previously, that um, it adds a layer of uncertainty to, to most developing countries right now. Because even before this occurred, uh, we had uh, resource economies dealing with a massive terms of trade shock from lower oil and commodity prices. And we had almost all developing countries dealing with a slower China. Uh, and which, by the way, is as important or even more important than the UK uh, as a trading partner for a number of developing countries. Um, so this, this decision, this shock in the UK, really adds that extra layer of, uh, of uncertainty uh, when it comes to the outlook. Uh, but in terms of the currencies, yeah, I think that's the key channel to watch out for, for countries that, number one, have a, a strong trade relationship with the UK, and number two, um, countries that just have large external imbalances. They were the ones that really struggled um, 
and that will, as I mentioned, you know, investment, inward investment tends to struggle and tends to suffer in the longer term on the basis of that. Okay, we'll be going through very, very high uh, deficit, inward investment, all suffering, and of course costs going up. Just going back to the original question about whether it's going to be something done, which you know will be perhaps uh, improving the lot of the people generally. Actually, consumer prices will be going up uh, because of the exchange rate, and already, and already they are. Except of course there are price wars in the supermarkets because no one will be able to afford the, the stuff they're buying. So, so it, we seem to be falling into the pattern of the developing country. Yeah. Um, so there's a question that might have resonance with the I'm not going to put this to the panel immediately, but it may be one to reflect on, and I think it'll have resonance for a lot of people in this room, which is from Selina Victor from Mercy Corps, who'd like to ask the panel, how much did the edict of the Charity Commission that NGOs not take a public position affect the result of the referendum, should we have challenged it? So I'll unfute uh, to mull over. Um, let, let's uh, take another set of questions. Front row. Hey, thanks. Uh, Helen Parker from WaterAid. Um, my question, I suppose maybe it follows on nicely uh, from uh, the Mercy Corps question and it is quite broad, but how can we in the development sector try and brace for these massive negative impacts or try to mitigate their effects? Is it lobbying? Is it our own financial management? Um, or is it something else? Okay. Uh, one, one over here. Uh, yeah, just very quickly to your point about NGOs. I, I've lived in Ethiopia and I've lived in uh, Zanzibar. Do you just say who you are. Yes, sorry. Uh, Orville Kunga, Adinkra Arts Collective. Um, yes, yeah, so I was just saying that I've lived in Ethiopia and I've lived and worked in Zanzibar. So um, NGOs, they're living all right. So I think they're, they're quite happy. Um, but I would just wanted to know what what would you say to my Congolese friend, uh, a refugee, um, about certainly EU's relationships. Certainly, when we talk about DRC Congo, and and the money that's been poured into the government there as they now go for a third um, election, um, regards three hundred million, I think, uh, euros, and just I think it was sixty million um, towards their uh, gov government justice reform plan. What would you say to her? about EU relationship to certainly the DRC Congo. And, and also, uh, I believe that Sam Akiki wrote recently about, again, EU relationship to Africa in terms of the tariffs, which I think were mentioned as well, quite stiff tariffs, and also the agricultural policy, which was alluded to earlier, as regards, obviously, the you know, European nations pretty much dumping excesses on African markets. And I just wanted to ask the audience, when's the last time you tasted an African banana? Or maybe you've drunk Blue Mountain coffee from Jamaica? So okay. just a couple of points. Thank you. All right. Um, are there a couple more questions? Any, any over this side? Okay. So who was there? No? No, no, no. Okay, just, just here. Oh, and then then. Uh, okay. Hi there. Uh, Molly Anders from DevX. Um, um, Pretty simple question. I want to know what is better for aid and trade, a quick or a slow Brexit, um, given that a slower Brexit might mean that we retain some of those channels through the EU. Uh, is there still some mitigating factors that could, that could actually hurt uh, the markets and aid in general in the longer term? OK, so that's a good question. Um, how much do you want this to hurt over, over what time period? <laughs> 
Kelly, I'm Director of Policy and Research at Save the Children UK. Um, just wondering if the panel could comment a little bit on where they would like, if we do Brexit, and I'm hoping there's ways that we can avoid that, but if we do, where they would like the £3 billion we currently spend through European institutions to be reallocated? Can we keep it multilateral um, on the basis that multilateral aid uh, is in general more effective? Um, well, what are the options that, that, that we should be considering? Thank you. Okay, so look, there's, there's a broad set of questions there, so I'm going to let you take your pick on what you want to focus on. But uh, actually, that does raise an interesting issue, which is, is this inevitable? I mean, do, do you actually think this is now a sealed deal? Look, I think, I think every person who voted to remain probably hopes not, uh, and that there will be some way around. We may be, you know, most people are probably deluded in thinking that this will happen, but... Uh, that, that therefore we can we can exit it, but who knows? I think politics has become such a, a difficult one to predict uh, that uh, that indeed there may be ways around. Lots of people think that there could be ways around around it. There could be another election. There could be another referendum once we know what the deal would be. Uh, there could be panic, um, and who knows? And there may even be a new uh, leader of the Labour Party. So this is completely non-partisan sort of discussion we're having here. Uh, obviously, the referendum is finished, so we don't have to uh, put this down as expenses uh, or campaign campaign expenses. That was one of the questions I think you you uh, someone asked, um, and, and I think that has been an issue really. The fact that the NGOs haven't had a voice, and, and we're not just talking about the NGOs. I mean, I, I know that universities, I mean, the LSE and others would be having sort of one person speaking, and then suddenly. They, 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 they were looked at as if they had actually made a, a contribution to one campaign or another campaign because they didn't have quite the balance or whatever, which is really uh, silly because we didn't have the right, the right debate. So that would be my, my response to that. And, and the response to on whether uh, sooner or later, if given my answer to the first question, which is that, that um, Kevin actually asked and it was raised at the back, which is that we may perhaps not go through it uh, prolonging it, I would suggest, is is better, even though it may have some uncertainty. The most important thing of it is that, of course, a lot of the commitments we have made, certainly through the EU, remain. Um, what may happen with the, with our own contribution is a different issue, but a lot of the other commitments will remain and will remain for longer. I think that's probably good news. Okay, um, maybe just Mohammed and, and David, the, you, you know, you're you're close to trade negotiators who will be directly affected by this deal, for better or for worse, most, mostly for worse, as, as you've set out. I, I just wonder in terms of, you know, in your own engagement with the UK government on the terms on which it extracts itself from EU institutions, what are the sort of issues that you're going to be raising? Shall I go first? Please. Moment? Yeah. Um, no, I think certainly uh, during the... Um, uh, transition, whatever transition arrangements, uh, I think should try to lock in the current uh, uh, trading uh, arrangements that, uh, that are there. So the uh, EPAs which have just been concluded at least give that sort of certainty as to how uh, African countries uh, trade uh, with the EU and, and the UK uh, would want to see uh, that that remains um, in place. They're not perfect, of course, but nonetheless, that's what we we have. Um, the everything but arms uh, is very important for um, the uh, least developed countries. We'd like to see that um, uh, remain, that uh, those um, uh, would be taken into account in uh, transitional uh, uh, discussions uh, so that at least we, we have certainty. Uh, there were one or two intriguing questions, but um, I don't know if no, I... please yeah, go. Yeah, indeed. 
Um, actually, the question about reform in the DR Congo and the support um, is um, uh, this is something that we're looking at from another direction, and that is to say that um, uh, as much as uh, Africa's external economic relations and uh, trade and uh, investment, etc., these are things that we're looking at, but we have also kept an eye on the ball on internal policy reform, uh, reducing trade costs. Um, uh, growing African productivity, uh, diversifying um, the uh, export uh, production basket, and, and, and so on. So these are very important uh, questions that we are very strong advocates for um, as far as uh, uh, medium to long term uh, change in, in, in Africa is concerned. I don't need to remind you about the uh, figures. Uh, Africa only accounts for 1% of world trade. Um, and you know you can look at different various sectors where there are huge um, uh, challenges. So as much as um, uh, external economic relations uh, does exercise us, uh, but uh, we keep, continue to keep our ball on internal uh, in internal reform. Um, there's also a very quick point on on bananas, and, and you know they've not been seen or eaten. <laughs> now, actually, um, uh, most interestingly, we. Um, uh, our own uh, research uh, shows that, uh, contrary to what was previously uh, thought, that the um, reform of the banana regime, and indeed the sugar regime, would wipe out the production in Africa. But that doesn't happen. Uh, actually, banana and sugar uh, are, still, uh, are still doing quite well. So um, I don't know where you're looking, but um, you can find some bananas, I'm sure, uh, around. Then uh, just finally, uh, which goes to the first point about um, you know what the transitional arrangements are. You know, I mean, certainly for us, we think a slow, uh, slow Brexit would uh, be much more preferable. At least it would give us all a uh, chance to catch our breath, to see what's going on, and to uh, see what, uh, uh, what, 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 uh, what, what sort of policies and strategies. Yeah. So just to confirm that on bananas, I, um, I always get these very small ones from Cote d'Ivoire for my little boy's lunchbox every day. So I think they they, they do seem <laughs> well, to be booming. Yeah. Well, I, think yeah. um, I think that. Most important point is um, about how the world economy is going to, if I can say, ensure stability you know, when these negotiations uh, takes place. Uh, I agree with Vicky, perhaps you know, prolong the uh, discussion or negotiation could be a good idea. But having said that, what is important to make sure that there is no further repercussions of this sort. Imagine if the euro is also going to have similar kind of impact, the development consequences are going to be much greater. In fact, we are now in a situation when UK, if you think about a share in the global uh, GDP, which is just about 5%, but in terms of the overall impact for development, for developing countries, it's much greater than that. Finally, Kevin, I fully agree with uh, David's point here, locking in, in terms of the benefits or current arrangements that African countries have got under EPAS and under EBA. But although I agree with Vicky and Sheila, about the doubts about you know being hopeful like you know how much actually can be achieved but i think if uk is going to have its own policy mechanism or trade policy regimes for developing countries it should try to achieve some improvements and i can be concrete iba i would say also reform the rules of origin pretty straightforward there are examples and that it can do second there is this negotiations on illicit services waiver wto members have agreed that can be done, and UK can be uh, a country that can set some example in terms of providing right kind of preferences for the world's poorest countries. 
Uh, then uh, there is this um, global deal. Now we have got trade facilitation agreement. Of course, we are concerned about UK GDP overall economic prospect, but I think UK should be committed uh, to advocating for and providing whatever support available in terms of advancing this trade facilitation uh, deal. Thank okay. You. Thanks. Phyllis, um, again, I want to ask you a question that didn't come up, but you know, if you look at the patterns of development financing, particularly for sub-Saharan Africa in, in recent years, there, there has been quite a significant move into bond markets for infrastructure financing and, and um, wider financing. And three years ago, the, the yields were actually pretty low, you know, 2, two to 3%. Uh, they, I think last year for some countries, Zambia, Ghana, they were up in the 8 to 9% range. I just wonder what, again, what the implications of Brexit might be for bond yields and, uh, and bond financing in, in sub-Saharan Africa. It's such an interesting question because, in fact, uh, global bond yields are declining now because everyone's buying bonds, so the interest rates are coming down. But unfortunately, given this um, regime of risk aversion, the countries that probably need the finance most will probably pay the highest borrowing costs. Um, so they probably will see some decline in the cost of borrowing, but it won't be, it won't be a lot. Um, again, it depends on the country, but it's not but is, a... Is there any early evidence on this? Well, there was evidence that issues? the borrowing costs rose uh, in the wake of the, the vote. Um, but I think in terms of countering shocks and accessing finance, this goes to your question about... Um, what can we do to prevent these shocks? Um, I think there's something to be said about emergency finance uh, in these situations of risk aversion. I think, you know, the Bank of England pledged 250 billion pounds to support the, the UK financial system. Um, developing countries clearly don't have that luxury when it comes to that type of liquidity. And I, frankly, I think the G20 should speak up and they should uh, highlight that these types of liquidity arrangements uh, would be, should be uh, made available to, to non-G20 countries uh, and, to, and to less developed countries, to LDCs as well. Um, there's a real lack of uh, foresight uh, when it comes to protecting against these shocks, when it comes to, to liquidity management. Um, big gap with what's available in the UK uh, versus uh, developing countries. And borrowing costs definitely feeds into that. Okay, yeah. thank you. Um, I'm going to take one um, last round, but very brief, if you if you would please. Um, anyone on this side? One, not one right here. Yes, um, Helen Jones, Royal Commonwealth Society. Um, I believe that Malta takes up the presidency of the European Community uh, early next year, and I think hands on immediately the baton to the UK as we president. Oh, I think we've already said we're not taking it, I thought. Oh, have we? Okay. I thought. Um, right. But the, um, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, the next one, is going to be in the UK in the first half of 2018. I wonder if that meeting now becomes incredibly important for us in the development sector to actually more effectively lobby the Commonwealth um, and key governments in terms of the UK government, in terms of what um, mitigate, we, how, how we can mitigate some of the impact of Brexit? Thanks, that's a really good question. Um, one here. 
Hi, this is actually a, <clears throat> a question for you, Kevin, because you were quite vocal about this before the vote, and uh, we spoke, and I uh, got some of your uh, your understanding about where you thought this might end uh, might end us up. But um, what will this do to the UK's influence on climate change? Okay, Sheila. Uh, sorry, a second bite, but to follow up something which Vicky said. What sort of trade negotiator will the UK be? Because we've all joked about, well, it'll be like some African country negotiating for the first time. But I think the analogy is more with South Africa, which is coming back into trade negotiations after years out of it with a reasonably educated population, uh, with people who know about trade in theory but are not trade negotiators. And they, how shall I put this politely, made a mess of their first trade negotiation. And then on the whole got better, but they were very, um, very South African oriented, very much promoting their own interests, very unwilling to compromise when they first started, which is normal for someone who's inexperienced. Is the UK likely to be like that? Okay, that's a, re that's a really good sign-off question. So what I'm going to ask you all to do is maybe respond to those two issues that have come up. Actually, one, Mohammed, very relevant to you, I think, on the Commonwealth. Um, I'll try and say something about climate change after, but um, and and also on, you know, the UK's capabilities and what it'll bring to the trade negotiated table. So, and if you make your sign, make your own sign-off comments uh, as well. Let's go from left to right. Thank you. Um, uh, yes, uh, our members, you know, they are already concerned. We uh, over the past uh, week or so, we have received a number of queries. You know, they're asking for information. We are deeply engaged with them. And in my view, we also think that you know the next chogam is going to be a chogam where the Commonwealth countries they need to also come closer and reflect on what has happened in the war. Uh, we work closely, and we work closely, especially on the global advocacy side. And the next chogam will be an important opportunity for us to think about the right course of action and perhaps a bit more, you know, uh, I would say, solid and committed engagement uh, from. Uh, the UK government and other governments alike, you know, so that you know we can all address these serious concerns, particularly the issues on development side. With regards to the UK's trade negotiating capacity, Sheila, I'm perhaps a bit more hopeful than the way you have uh, articulated it. I think, as you know, the trade negotiation it takes time, and that time itself gives a lot of capacity building opportunities. We just need to be, I mean, in the UK, I mean, they just need to be, uh, I would say, innovative. And sometimes, you know, some of the policies, you know, thinking of other uh, negotiators who can help, uh, that will be extremely helpful. It's a bit irony that, you know, uh, the UK aid, especially under Aid for Trade, has gone to many of our uh, developing countries in helping them with trade negotiations. There is a flagship Commonwealth project on what we call Harbour Spokes, you know, and under that particular project, we have got about 30 advisors you know, who are working with many developing country governments, you know, advising them on trade policy issues. So one thing is, of course, that time will be important. And I think we'll see you know, that capacity is being developed here. So I'm, I'm slightly hopeful. It's all about you know, how that process can be managed. Thank you. Um, OK, well, um, I think that's a very, very good point that Mohammed just made, that, that obviously there are people uh, all around. In fact, there are probably lots of people in this room who can 
who can offer their services because they know the issues in, in, in very many countries. But, but of course, that could be, and if we have a point system, we could bring lots of South Africans uh, over to, to, to assist us because they would be the sort of needed, needed uh, expertise that we need in the, in the UK. So, so we could put them at the top of the list. So, um, but I do want to, first of all, I, I say that I thought that we were not, uh, that the UK had actually given up running. I read this somewhere. It may not be true. The fact that no one else seems to know this worries me. So, so, um, so I'm probably wrong. So it's, it's worth it's worth sharing. But I think it's a, it's a huge potential. But the interesting thing would be to what extent, of course, the the UK can still hold its own, if you like, and really influence things. And I think we'll be weakened in those discussions. And that's that's a real uh, a real problem. But I think one of the things that's just been raised on the trade side, which we perhaps didn't didn't touch on, even though someone asked it and made the point, is the soft power. Uh, that we exercise. Uh, I, my experience of having done a lot of developing uh, country work is that uh, the, the expertise we, we, we give, uh, the technical assistance we provide, uh, the support with ministries and so on, uh, the, the putting people in various economic areas, the ODI fellows and all that sort of stuff, is, is quite extraordinary and I think considerably better received in various countries than is the case with, 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 with others. And I think we will be losing that if, if for any reason that is reduced. And it is really the technical assistance that, that matters a lot in terms of getting, getting people to, um, to really uh, rethink uh, the way in which they run their economy. And we would be losing that because, of course, we want them then to be proper partners to deal with and trade with. Uh, and so we need to absolutely not have the problems of corruption and and, and all the sort of stuff that is still out there and having our people uh, worried about and concerned about these issues uh, is, is, is really important. And having said that, of course, being an economist, I would always find the, the, the social scientists sort of completely disagreeing with any of our free market policies, which I discovered all, all around, including, of course, having worked in Zanzibar, which was mentioned before. Um, so, so there's still the tensions, but there are, I think, quite healthy tensions. And, and we manage them considerably better, I think, than many of the other uh, agencies. David. Yeah, um, well, you know, the South Africans haven't changed uh, that much, I can say. I've watched them um, in two sessions of the uh, Trade Negotiating Forum for the CFTA, and uh, by all accounts, um, also in the uh, tripartite free trade area negotiations, uh, they've been very hard-nosed and uh, uncompromising and not quite understanding what um, other uh, partners want from a deal and, and so on. So, um, yeah, I mean, South Africa could be a good source of... Uh, uh, of expertise. But actually, I know that Vicky has worked in the Department of Business and, and Skills, so she would know more. But my sense is that the challenge for the UK is not really on the negotiation side, uh, would be my own view. Uh, that um, the resources in this country on the trade negotiation side, including even in the city where the trade law practices that we know are advising governments around the world on, on trade negotiations. So to me, I don't think that's where the capacity deficit is. I think the capacity deficit, rather, is in trade administration. Uh, you know, um, I don't, the UK doesn't have the equivalent of, say, the International Trade uh, Commission, which the US uh, has for investigating uh, contingency uh, trade um, uh, related issues, anti-dumping and, and so on, or um, I think the research capacity also in the UK is sort of scattered all over the place. It doesn't come together as it does in the US or in, in, in other countries, in Canada, 
and so on. So I think it's really the trade administration part that's going to be the challenge, not so much in the negotiations. Uh, by the way, uh, several of the best textbooks that I know and I recommend uh, on trade negotiations are written here, including by my good friend <laughs> Sheila sitting right there. So um, that's not where I think the, the issue is. But my last point will be this. And that is, uh, I think this is the time for progressive voices. I think someone was asking um, uh, the question, um, how to mitigate the effects. Um, I think this is the time for um, uh, progressive voices. This is the time for honest people to, to speak up. And uh, we've seen in cases where um, uh, the progressive voices be muted, um, you know, the loss of influence, the loss of um, uh, progress uh, on, 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 on these, uh, these issues. So I think this sort of uh, activity is, is, is great. Um, I hope um, ODI and others would uh, continue to do this, uh, uh, bring people together to think through these things and to uh, ensure that there is a strong uh, advocacy. I was saying before that we came into uh, this discussion that when, the, when Canada lost the um, North-South Institute, uh, which had been uh, a very strong uh, advocate and independent think tank on, on these issues. We see the effect that that had on Canadian uh, trade and, and aid policy. So I hope that this doesn't happen in this country and that uh, we would hear uh, the progressive voices uh, really uh, speak out and, and challenge uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the questions as, as they go forward. I, I mean, looking ahead, I think the key challenge is mitigating the uh, inherent uncertainty involved with these types of trade negotiations uh, and to safeguard growth. Um, I tend to take a different view that I think that a speedier start to the negotiations would mitigate the economic uncertainty, um, certainly in the markets, which is going to have the spillover effect on growth. Um, but I think we're managing a very difficult period ahead, and I agree that we need progressive voices to, uh, to be at the forefront of that. Thank you. Um, actually, I think what I'm supposed to do at this point of the evening is to summarize the discussion, but uh, you can forget that. I'm not going to. I think we've had an incredibly rich <laughs> discussion. Um, but I, I, I do want to make, if I could, just four or five really brief points on um, how we got here and how we need to get to a better place. Um, you know, just, just reflecting back on the referendum, you have to say that was one hell of a way not to run a campaign. Be, you know, because the strategy on the Brexit side was to dump a dead cat on the table and say, this costs your economy, whatever, whatever the number was, 20 billion pounds a year. And we're gonna talk about the dead cat. And then the debate was it, it doesn't cost 20 billion, it costs 8 billion. Um, and by the way, your house price might go down and you might lose 1% of growth. You know, so you've got one side appealing to the heart, it's patriotism and sovereignty and talking about the dead cat. And the other side asking the IMF to come up with a number on the macroeconomic, you know, and, and the, dis the political disconnect you know, I think it was evident really early on this was going in a really bad direction and a, and a very winnable campaign was lost in part because of the narrative. And actually, on, you know, I, I have to say, reading Peter Mandelson in the Financial Times last weekend half recognises it but doesn't fully get it. And, but I, and I do think there are really important lessons for us. You know, that these, the, these narratives on development and interdependence really matter a lot. Um, 
And on that theme, you know, there's, there's very little that Michael Gove said during the campaign that was true. But one of the things he did say that was right was that um, globalization uh, has benefited the rich in Britain and left the rest of the country behind. Um, very few people in the Labour Party were heard publicly voicing that particular view. But I, I, you know, I, I do think if you look at those voting patterns, that there was this very sharp distinction between the rich and the poor. You know, when you get Stoke-on-Trent vote, you know, one of the most deprived parts of the country, you have some of the most deprived parts of Cornwall that are getting the biggest per capita transfers from the EU, voting the same way as Buckinghamshire um, and the richest 10% of the country. It really tells you something very fundamental about, you know, what's going on with inequality in the UK. And I think this mixture of, you know, the rise of in-work poverty, the collapse of decent quality services, and this really deep sense of alienation, which I, you know, I, I think clearly escaped the attention of the political elite, if we're, if we're honest about it. And, you know, you, David, you mentioned the need for progressive narratives. And I don't think this is a straight left-right issue. But, it, you know, it, I think it is the case that, um, you know, we lost sight of the importance of domestic, political and social and economic developments for how people view Britain's place in the world and Britain's place in Europe. And, you know, we're paying a really high price for that. The, the third point... I wanted to make <coughs> is that Vicky, you said right at the beginning, and I, and I think it's right that you know you can look you can look at the economic consequences and the transmission mechanisms, but there are really deep political undercurrents that are at play here as well. And many of the people, you know, the think tanks who felt far less constrained by the Charity Commission than some of the NGOs, you know, the newspaper editors that were pushing in a Brexit direction do have a particular view about Britain's place in the world and it is a very insular view and it's profoundly anti-aid and if these you know or the anti-aid bit is a, is a part of the story you know it's about uh, governments are bad you know governments that give a lot of money in aid to other governments are doubly bad and I you know I think it's an absolute certainty that there are knives being sharpened on the aid budget and I, I don't think it's inevitable that it goes in that direction, but unless we can create a really compelling narrative around Britain's place in the world and the place of aid in explaining Britain's place in the world, you know, I, you know, I, I, I do think we're heading in a bad direction both on aid and on development cooperation more broadly. And I agree with the speakers that, you know, I, I think, and you know, Sheena made this point very strongly as well, that the withdrawal of Brit of UK influence in Europe, if you think, if you just think of climate change, I mean, you know, less of a voice for the UK means more of a voice for Poland, actually, if you, you know, put it very mm. crudely, and more of a voice for Poland in shaping EU climate policy is not a good thing for developing countries. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do think reasserting that case and, and winning those arguments is, is absolutely critical. That what, one of the things I found really helpful from the speakers, but also from the questions, that you know, the, coming into ODI the day after the vote was a, a, a bit like wandering around the local morgue. <laughs> um, and, and I think we're still sort of coming out of sure, that, sure. to be completely honest with you. <laughs> Look at the faces around the room. No, I'm, I'm joking. But I, I, I do think we have to start getting into the mindset of, you know, we're not helpless 
in the face of this, and not everything is fixed in stone. And you know, you've you've all set out very practical agendas that can be advanced. You know, on rules of origin, on making the case for everything but arms. I, I would say on remittances. You know, given the foreign exchange shock, you know, there's there's a sustainable development goal target of getting remittance transfer costs down to three percent. I mean, that target is way too high, in my view. But for Africa, it's now currently 12%. So, so actually, you could counteract a large part of the foreign exchange yeah. effect yeah. by driving our remittances costs. Now, you know, th this is a regulatory issue. I mean, th these guys are operating a cartel. And you know, for free marketeers who don't like cartels, I think you know, making the case for Western Union and others to do what they should have done years ago and be more competitive, and African governments as well, actually, to be allow more competitive yeah, mar markets yeah, um, yeah. develop. So, you know, and, and I, th I think this is something we should come together on. You know, we've got Sheila, who's, you know, one of the great experts on international trade, you know, the expertise around this table. I mean, this has to be a point where we come together to frame the type of agenda that we can take to the Commonwealth Summit and elsewhere that could, um, that could really make a difference. The, the, the last thing, which I'm not going to go into any, any sort of detail, but one thing that worries me a lot about the vote and the debate surrounding it was the narrative around migration, which is actually a code for how we think about others and our international responsibilities and the generalized collapse of empathy, actually. And, you know, it, it's a tough debate to take up. But, I, you know, I think... Um, and there was clearly a deeply nasty undercurrent in relation to migration on the, you know, on the part of the... Leave campaign, but it's, it but it wasn't universal, actually. And I, you know, and I, and I do think we, we we have to reassert the right of migrant people and refugees to a fair deal in Europe and in the UK, and the UK should be doing a lot more on on that. So, um, so the first thing I was supposed to do was to sum up, uh, which I've, I've comprehensively failed to do that. The second thing I have to do is thank the audience. So huge thank you. I, I think that was a fantastic debate that, that we had. So thank you to all of you for the questions and the contributions. The third thing I have to do is thank the speakers, which is uh, an absolute pleasure to, to do that. Phyllis, David, Vicky, and Mohammed. Th thank you so much to all of you for Um, and the, the fourth thing I have to say is to say that you're all invited to stay on for what is probably EU wine, but to be taken in what is now a sovereign free nation. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much to all of you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.